Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast... We discuss how Christian Wakeford's defection may have actually helped Boris Johnson in the short term. And you ask us, would Rishi Sunak be a harder opponent for Keir Starmer? So hello again, Alvaro. I mean, it's not been long since we last spoke on this podcast after our emergency recording. Long time no speak. <laughs> I mean, it feels like an age um, with mm. this week where every single thing that happens could be a two week long news story, but they happen one after the other in five minute intervals. Um, so Stephen <laughs> is achieving an, an honorary degree today, so he can't actually join us. Um, but we did hear a lot of his uh, instant reactions yesterday. And I am actually recording from bedroom and there's a great deal of drilling. Uh, so I apologise to our listeners for that. I'm having flats built on top of, of my flat. Not, not, not work that I've commissioned. I might just add. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, Albert, you, um, you were sort of uh, following the twists and turns of the fallout of Christian Wakeford's defection yesterday evening, and mm. you actually wrote that it's, it may have actually helped Boris Johnson's position in the short term. Why are people concluding that? I mean, I suppose he's still in his job, for one thing. Yeah, it it was strange. I mean, I think we there was there was a sense of that after PMQs yesterday a little bit. You could feel it in the chamber that something slightly shifted. That certainly MPs were a bit more vocal in their support of Boris Johnson, just because I think they hated the spectacle of Keir Starmer getting an easy win. And you know, I think they're they're kind of happy to have internal mutiny. But if Keir Starmer and Labour are so clearly benefiting that's that becomes a bit uncomfortable for them so I think that yeah there was that feeling of a shift yesterday and then it just meant that some people who had been considering submitting letters just didn't you know I think um mm. <laughs> it's just sort of amazing how those little things can make a difference because it's you know it's a big thing to submit one of those letters mm. and um it's striking that lots of people who who have been quite vocal, for example, David Davis, certainly at the point where he called on Boris Johnson to go, hadn't actually um, submitted a letter. And um, I'm not sure if, he, you know, if he still hasn't, but you can be speaking in quite mutinous terms without necessarily submitting a letter. And then it just felt like I went to the 1922 committee yesterday evening, which happens weekly with a representative from the government and conservative backbenchers. And it was 
incredibly quiet. You know, it was really just a few dozen Conservative MPs, possibly because it was just Alok Sharma addressing them, and not what not one of not one of the big beasts. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Poor Alok. I know. Although I'm sure he was relieved. <laughs> you know, often a lot of MPs do go back to their constituencies on Wednesday afternoons. Um, after PMQs is over so it just felt like the mood kind of died and you know we we began in such a frenzy and by the end of the day it just it didn't really seem like anything was going to happen despite that really explosive intervention from David Davis during PMQs and you know a quite senior Tory was saying to me yesterday that this is this is how it works you know that if Boris Johnson is going to survive this is what it looks like that actually he just gets gets through from day to day he has actually for all that people think he has handled this terribly um or particular comments from him have been particularly misguided not least him saying that no one told him that the party you know broke the rules he, no one told him what the rules were for all that people think he's handled all of that badly he's ultimately still surviving well you know he's getting through from day to day which is sort of all he needs and you know former whip was saying that if they were managing this their priority would just be putting off reaching the threshold of 54 letters for as long as possible just keep kicking it into the long grass persuading more and more people to wait to give him a second chance not to hand that gift to Keir Starmer to let things settle down a bit whatever reason you give people we might come on to that in a second, how whips are persuading people. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, that really you just, you know, from day to day, you just kick it into the long grass, kick the hand on the road, and eventually the mood will change. That feeling of urgency will slowly, slowly dissipate. And there won't be one big moment where people feel like they've forgiven Boris Johnson. But eventually the story does move on. Yeah, I think that was really interesting, that quote from the MP that you mentioned, who said sort of this is what it looks like for him to survive, because you can almost Mm. imagine sort of in our era of utterly shameless politics, him hanging on despite all of this stuff. The Sue Gray report comes out, you know, there's a bit more rancor, perhaps a few more people say they've they've put letters in, but he gives another apology. And maybe the apology sounds a little bit more plausible than the the previous apologies. Mm. Talk turns to... uh, self-isolation rules and test and trace rules lapsing in March. Uh, There's a debate about mandatory vaccines for NHS staff. You know, that's supposed to come in in April. And you can kind of see the mood turning or the conversation turning more towards the sort of the end of COVID measures and what the final rows are over those and him kind of clinging on. Um, Because Mm. he did make a statement, didn't he, after, after PMQs yesterday about ending Plan B measures and some of those are immediate. So... Masks are no longer required for for school children in in England to wear today, and we're no longer being advised to work from home today as well. So some of that immediate stuff obviously did make it up to the very top of the the news bulletins. So I thought that that insight from from whoever you were speaking to was was really interesting and actually probably depressingly for many of our listeners you know, quite a likely scenario, but he's not out of the woods yet. And actually I was thinking about defections Mm. and how they do have a tendency directly or indirectly to kind of upturn politics as we know it. Let's not forget when Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless defected to UKIP in 2014. That was one Mm. of the factors, not the only one, but one of the factors that led to David Cameron campaigning in 2015, you know, for the general election the year later, that a Tory majority would be the only way to to secure an in-out referendum on on EU membership. Mm. 
we know the sort of road that that led him down. And also remember when the politicians who left Labour and, and the Tories to form the, in, that independent group, briefly known as Change UK. I mean, we all laugh about it now because it was so short lived, but actually it did have real political repercussions. That same month, Labour shifted its stance to backing a second referendum. So, yeah. you know, you can't say either of those led to a change in government, but they did lead to both of the party leaders' demise, you know, directly or indirectly. So these defections can be a symptom of a leader being kind of out of step with the country at large or maybe out of step with with their party's priorities. And that could be the case with Christian Wakeford. I mean, I remember when Ben Walker was talking to us on his recent sort of polling update that um, Boris Johnson is actually less popular in the Red Bull seats than in the country at large. And I don't know if you mm. saw there was some interesting polling by JL Partners that, um, you know, if there was an election today, the Tories would lose all but three of their red wall seats. So, And, and obviously Christian Wakeford represents a red wall seat. So it, this could be telling a deeper story about the trouble that Boris Johnson's in beyond sort of his immediate standing. It also just points, I suppose, to a political truth that I suppose should have been quite obvious, but until Christian Wakeford's defection, I certainly wasn't, wasn't giving it much thought and I don't think other journalists were. Obviously, there's a cohort of, of red wall new Conservative 2019 intake MPs who are almost certainly going to lose their seats at the next general election, even if the Conservatives are re-elected. Because mm. Boris Johnson won such a big majority last time, it's clearly people like Christian Wakeford. And, you know, he's on a tiny majority of 402. You know, maybe as the incumbent, he would, he would be able to cling on. But it looks so unlikely if there's just a slight swing away from the Conservatives. If they they win but they do less well at the next general election then he'll be out and that will be a Labour seat again and you know I think in passing there are there are MPs around um, the House of Commons who fit that boat and I think you do think oh they'll pro- they probably won't be here after the next election um, and I'm sure they think it too <laughs> yeah. just, you know but, but actually well yeah what that means in terms of how those MPs conduct themselves is very interesting that the occasional one hates it being being framed in those terms. You know, they they say, you know, you don't have a God given right to be an MP. You know, I think they've they've been speaking quite unkindly about colleagues who are just focused on keeping their seats rather than on doing good for their constituents while mm. they're in the job. There's a, definitely a bit of frustration there, but it just means, you know, what what would you do as an MP if you thought that you weren't very likely to hold on to your seat and it's a it's a tough ask for the Conservatives at the next election, you know, to win yet another term. It's a it's also a huge ask of Labour to come back from such a lower ebb in one electoral cycle. But just for those individual MPs, Christian Wakeford is the first person really just indicating that he thinks he stands a better chance of re-election as a Labour candidate than as a Conservative. Yeah, no, absolutely. And his majority is really small, isn't it? It's 402, something like that. And um, a lot of them have very small majorities. And like you say, almost whatever the circumstances of the next general election, it's likely that some of those majorities will be erased, not least because the circumstances of that December 2019 election were so specific, you know, the Brexit rows, Jeremy Corbyn being a very unpopular alternative. Um, you know, I can't imagine sort of the extremes of those kind of debates being repeated at another general election in quite the same way. And also, do you remember North Shropshire um, when the Lib Dems won that 
John Curtis, the the sort of polling guru, was saying, well, this this is a sign that Brexit isn't going to be as much of an indication of how people vote in future elections. So that could also change the calculation. Um, and also, there's a, there's something in this about the treatment of the 2019 intake, particularly this week with the kind of briefings against them. William Ragg, um, Tory MP, chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee, has actually come out with some accusations um, against the sort of Downing Street operation. In recent days, a number of members of Parliament have faced pressures and intimidation from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. It is, of course, the duty of the Government Whip's office to secure the government's business in the House of Commons. However, it is not their function to breach the ministerial code in threatening to withdraw investments from members of Parliament's constituencies which are funded from the public purse. Additionally, reports to me and others of members of staff at Number 10 Downing Street, special advisers, government ministers and others encouraging the publication of stories in the press seeking to embarrass those who they suspect of lacking confidence in the Prime Minister is similarly unacceptable. The intimidation of a Member of Parliament is a serious matter. Moreover, the reports of which I am aware would seem to constitute blackmail. As such, it would be my general advice to colleagues to report these matters to the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, and they're also welcome to contact me at any time. What do you make of his accusations? And I think you mentioned some of this yesterday when we were talking about the idea that people might, um, you know, m- might not get the support that they need in their constituencies, for example. I think I remember talking about this on the podcast quite a while back when the government was trying to pass some less popular policies. Certainly, I had a conversation with a Conservative MP quite a long time ago when the government was trying to pass something unpopular and they said in confidence that the government had threatened to withdraw funding for a particular project in their constituency. Mm. I didn't report that because at that point that wasn't really being done to very many MPs and, you know, and you have to protect your sources mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, only only report those things with their cooperation, which they weren't really ready to do at that stage. Yeah. I literally don't even remember what vote that was on. So that person is protected but um, <laughs> quite quite a while back. But some some kind of, yeah, like dirty tactics. And mm-hmm. the this is where I think being, like just being honest, like being being a sort of younger political journalist doesn't serve me super well because it's hard to know how much of that is commonplace and how much is just absolutely extraordinary it's you know it's the the element of encouraging journalists as William Ragg puts it to publish unflattering stories about people in the press is incredibly sinister you know I haven't haven't heard about that from people involved recently but even just these threats of of pulling funding that has definitely been happening and for quite a while you know and it it has quite literally worked people mm. are quite pragmatic about you know even people who rebel a bit you know pick their battles because ultimately you know I, I think I, I believe that that person said something to me along the lines of you know my you know my constituents do need a hospital <laughs> so I'm not you know I'm not as their MP going to going to mess that one up uh, which is, is so dark so 
the, the thing that makes it different as well, though, I think is that these threats are being used to warn people against um, submitting their letters to trigger a vote of a form of vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson rather than just to get government business through because um, mm. for all that sort of vague threats you might not get the funding allocation that you wanted if you don't cooperate with the government for all that that might be a bit sinister to get some government business through that's what the whips are there for to ensure that the votes are there whereas it's not so specifically their job to make sure that Boris Johnson stays in place as Prime Minister. That's kind of straying from the brief a little bit. They are quite sinister tactics. And and I don't know whether you've seen, but so, some of it has focused on Dehenna Davidson, the, um, the MP for mm. Bishop Auckland, who has kind of been painted as the ringleader of the 2019 Red Wall plotters, even though she's come out and said that that's, that's you know, a completely fabricated kind of story. But, you know, they're carrying on today these kind of reports in the mail, sort of pictures of her drinking as if she's doing, you know, something wrong by doing that and suggesting that she's sort of not a reliable person. And, you know, it's quite nasty mm. and quite sexist as well. You know, I don't, I didn't see a hit job on Tim Loughton when he came out and said he'd put a letter in. Do you know what I mean? Maybe there is one, but mm. um, hasn't had as much prominence. So um, that's, that's quite grim. It isn't without precedent. It reminds me a little bit, this kind of thing of picking out some of these figures of the those kind of front pages you saw during the Brexit votes, um, you know, like the traitors in Ermin uh, on the Daily Mail about the peers in the House of Lords who weren't voting the way that the government wanted. I think there are a few front pages. There was one that said, proud of yourselves and had sort of all the pictures of these MPs who were going to rebel as if it was sort of like a wanted poster type thing. And the Brexit mm. mutineers, enemies of the people, but that was that was the High Court judges rather than politicians. But it does sort of remind me of that kind of coverage where it's like as soon as you get a sniff of the people who aren't towing the line, you then name them and sort of try and smoke them out and also try and sort of put the press's crosshairs onto them in a way that is um, is quite grim. And I suppose it's it's another example of poor party management that we've spoken about for a long time, you know, way before these number 10 party scandals um, in terms of sort of how Downing Street hasn't really shown the the love and attention to its to its new MPs that it should have done. And doing this sort of compounds, I think, a mistake because those MPs symbolically are very important for Boris Johnson's authority. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And now's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So we have a question from an anonymous listener. They ask, 
Considering the amount of time Keir Starmer has spent defining himself in opposition to Boris Johnson, wouldn't a change in the Conservative leadership be something of a disaster for Labour? Starmer's pitch against Johnson is obvious, but what is it against, for example, Rishi Sunak? So this is a really interesting question. I think, I think you know, the most recent figures show that Rishi Sunak is basically still the only popular Westminster politician with any sort of significant name recognition in this country. Mm. Um Obviously, there's Andy Burnham, who's far more popular, but he he isn't sort of a national politician. Um, do you think that sort of a, a Keir versus Boris election would would be more to Labour's favour than Keir versus Rishi? Who knows? I mean, certainly Conservative MPs are still worried that no one would be as good as Boris Johnson ultimately because, you know, he's he's so unpopular at the moment but he's he he they do think that he has this kind of star quality and Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss obviously other people might end up entering the field those two front runners mm. are ultimately both in in their different ways more conventional conservative politicians with a bit less of maybe the charisma of Boris Johnson so if it's something that conservative MPs are worried about then it's also something that like Labour could work with but they're kind of trying to find out from Labour people how they're preparing for a new opponent and mm. there definitely is a lot of work going on. I My impression is that their default assumption is that it will be Rishi Sunak because someone was sort of n- unwilling to really commit either way but then they sort of referred accidentally to the prince in waiting which definitely meant Rishi Sunak Um, so I think like that's their default I think Um. But they're sort of less willing to be drawn on how they retarget mm. their messages against him. Um, but actually, I think the, the wishful thinking is for all that they are pushing very hard to get rid of Boris Johnson at the moment, or you know, from the outside, that's how it looks, and that's how it looks from the SNP and the Liberal Democrats and everyone. Actually, when you speak to senior Labour and Lib Dem people, they all say that they don't think Rishi Sunak is ready. And Mm -hmm. I still don't know whether that is a a true assessment or wishful thinking on their part. Um, It's really striking to me that you hear it from both camps. I mean, so far, Rishi Sunak hasn't made a move. And we were saying on the podcast last week, I think there's a feeling among people around him that it wouldn't be so good for him to take over if Boris Johnson left immediately because of Partygate, it would just be a bit too messy and he'd be a bit tainted by it. And so it would be sort of better for him. But also maybe he just, you know, he he isn't ready enough. Maybe he doesn't have enough MPs. You know, he's he's still relatively new to high office. So I think that it means that Labour and the Lib Dems feel like they have a bit of time, basically, to prepare for how they would attack Rishi Sunak and, and also Liz Truss. I can see why people would think that perhaps Boris Johnson is an easier opponent for Keir Starmer given given their sort of their line pretty much throughout this whole thing has been one about competence and also one about you know you're not taking things seriously the joke isn't funny anymore that kind of thing and it is hard to see them landing those kind of attack lines on someone like Rishi Sunak who I think was generally you know given his popularity which has waned but it's still in the positive mm. end um was down to the fact that he he seemed really competent and in control when he was announcing 
the furlough scheme and saying that they do whatever it takes. And, and, you know, when he was giving those quite assured press conferences just at the beginning of, of him being chancellor, you know, he was so inexperienced in a way, but he, he took it in his stride. And I think people were, were impressed by that. So I think there is that residual reputation for competence that obviously Boris Johnson doesn't have now. So I can see why that would feel like it was a bit of a, perhaps a harder thing for, for Keir Starmer to land blows against. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, in terms of what the the attacks would be, um, you can already see the outlines of it. So on Rishi Sunak in particular, I think mm-hmm. you can already see the vague outlines and, you know, from, from what people say privately, but also how they've kind of tried to tackle him so far, which I think is the kind of punch this bruise of him being a little bit vain, a little bit precious, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, you know, and a bit out of touch. Um, you know, like he has already developed this quite strong, I find quite funny brand of, you know, having his Peloton and that expensive <laughs> mug that keeps, you know, hot liquids. Um, at a constant temperature um, <laughs> and those personalized things I think you know because particularly a politician like Bridget Phillips and on the on the labor side she mm. she was really quite quick to pick up on that you know, this the slight silliness and you can do that with a little bit of a sense of humor and I don't think the labor would be running with that if they didn't also think that it was by extension mm. a bit damaging for Rishi Sunak to be seen that way. Um, I mean, the corollary of that is that maybe people ultimately don't mind a senior politician who signals in lots of ways that he's rich and successful. But maybe that sort of him seeming a little bit out of touch and and his vanity getting in the way is one line of attack. And then I think the other one mm. is just perhaps a slipperiness that he's popular for things like the furlough scheme which Mm. are not really his brand of politics at all. And so that's going to have to change the more he makes decisions as chancellor, or even if he were to become prime minister and he was able to set his own agenda, some contradictions and making clearer what his actual agenda is would be, would be the other like line of labor attack. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because he will basically have an opposite if if he got his way with the party, he'd which you know he he likely would he'd have the opposite sort of economic agenda to the one that he was sort of forced into doing during the pandemic, i.e., trying to get a grip on spending. Um, mm. And also, this is at a time when people are really thinking about the economy in the sense of they're associating it with their own jobs and costs, you know, prices in shops and things. We had some interesting polling that we actually published that showed that people now associate the word economy more with their own circumstances than with the government needing to balance its budgets or or whatever the sort of more Tory line on keeping deficit and debt sort of in control would be. And so that means that that you know that could open up a vulnerability for for Rishi Sunak because he is responsible for for our money and that would be a way in for Labour to say well look you know you don't feel better off than this time last year do you particularly not with inflation rising the tax the tax rise that's due in April and all sorts of other things that are hurting people directly in the wallet and um, energy prices you know gas bills going up that he won't really be able to do very much about unless he sort of changes the way that he sees how markets and the economy should be run so that could be very difficult for him you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleague alva ray 
We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a nice review and to subscribe. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.